What's up, everybody? You're listening to another episode of What the Data Podcast. In today's episode, we have Jonathan Riox. He leads the data science operation for EPAM Canada and writes a book about large-scale data analysis. In these episodes, Mikael and I tried to understand why should you use Spark, how can you leverage it using Python, and how he arrived to the idea of writing his book about it. Mikael went for the technical parts, and I, as I love to do, went towards a product manager aspect. I hope you're going to enjoy this one, and tune in. Welcome to the What the Data podcast with your hosts, Mitch and Leo. I'm so happy to have you on the show today. How's it going? It's going very well. How are you? Good, good. So you are located in Canada. It's quite mm-hmm. cold for you. Uh, yeah. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself, about what you're doing on the day-to-day. Sure. Um, so um, I, um, I work for a software consultancy called EPAM Systems. Uh, we're a global consultancy that basically specialize into a custom solution. Uh, I'm leading the data science practice from Canada, um, which is, you know, we we have a couple of local heads like scattered through the world, but, um, you know, especially with COVID, uh, the boundaries between countries kind of became um, non-existent. You're behind your computer and you work with, just a bunch of other people that just happened to be in different time zone. Um, so a lot of my job relates to, you know, creating machine learning model, um, optimiz- solving optimization problem for a variety of clients. Um, mm-hmm. And I've been doing this with EPAM for the past, it's going to be almost three years. And uh, you also wrote a book, right? Yep. Yep. Um, I mean, on my spare time, um, I'm, I'm also writing um, a book on, uh, basically, what, what I like the most about my <laughs> my work, which is, uh, you know, performing uh, analytics on on large data sets. So, my book is called um, uh, Data Data Analysis with Python and PySpark. Um, it's with Manning Publication, and hopefully, I'm aiming to be done uh, writing it before the end of the year. That's cool. Uh, would you give us a little bit more details about the book? Oh, for sure. I mean, so data analysis, um, one of the things that we found, uh, I mean, through my experience uh, working with a variety of clients and also my previous experience in a workplace, is that, uh, you know, the data sets are growing, 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 growing. Uh, the computers are not following. Um, you know, you, you still have cloud, uh, which is fantastic, but... You know, when you want to be able to do something quick or you want to be able to scale your, your data set because your, your data is getting larger than what's reasonable for your computer, uh, you know, 16, gig, 16 gigs of RAM has been pretty standard. Uh, you know, you're able to get laptops with like 32, 64, but, you know, we're, we're still far from like getting those like huge machine with terabytes of data that can crunch everything locally. Um, so Spark became like, I accidentally started using Spark and, um, 
really liked the data model. The programming model felt very natural to me. Um, and then as I was going and trying to uh, to look through documentation and perfect my knowledge, uh, realized that the documentation, the blog post, some of the material that was available online was, uh, it didn't really answer all the questions that I had. Um, so, so I started drafting my own. I mean, uh, in the workplace, I've, I took the source code, reverse engineered it, learned Scala on the side. Um, and, uh, and, and that kind of became like a couple of uh, fast forward, maybe a year or so. Um, I realized that I had a lot of material um, that was dated, but I could kind of consolidate it into a book. And, and this is what I've been um, working on. Um, so it, it's really a big labor of love. I've, I've really, like, I'm probably like PySpark is the tool that I'm going to default to. It's very intuitive to me. Um, I find it to be extremely powerful. Um, but yeah, the documentation, what's available online is just, uh, like, I think that my book supplements, you know, what's available quite well. Cool. Hey everyone, um, I just snuck in while the two of you were talking. I hope you don't mind. Um, I'm probably late, am I? Right? It's already started. Okay, really, really sorry. Um, yeah, I was just running a little bit long with a bedtime story tonight. Um, so yeah, sorry guys. No problem. So um, my first question, um, after eavesdropping on your conversation for a little bit, could you maybe give us a quick working definition of what Spark actually is? Uh, for sure. So, I mean, the, the, to me, the best way to describe Spark is uh, a, a way to perform uh, data analysis and data science and data transformation on a cluster of multiple machine as if they were a single entity. So basically, distributed computing is something that's quite tough to nail properly. Um, there, there's a lot of consideration that needs to happen there. And I find that Spark has um, the right level of abstraction um, and the right level of magic to make it look like you're programming a single computer. Um, yeah, I, I think that's like, if it's a TLDR, I think, I think it's the best way to describe it. All right, makes sense. Um, so I think one, one other point we should probably clear up too is that... Um, not every use case necessarily needs a cluster for 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 uh, for processing, of mm -hmm. course. Um, at the same time, um, it helps you to future-proof your project if you already built something that's scalable, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, what are your main considerations for uh, choosing a Spark uh, approach as opposed to running a Jupyter notebook on someone's computer, or as, a pro as opposed to um, um, yeah, as opposed to kind of local processing of data on a non-cluster? Oh. For sure. So, I mean, as as you said, there's two camps of people. There's people that are going to default to Spark for pretty much everything because of the expressiveness of the framework, and they're going to take, uh, you know, they're they're going to default to it because it's kind of a way to future proof your analytics as you know your your program's going to scale. Um, my usually my decision boundary, and and this is something I was discussing a little bit earlier, is. You know, for the past maybe, I would say five to six years, uh, you know, the amount of memory that the laptop is getting, like stock, hasn't moved that much. Eight, 16, 32 gigs of RAM if you're lucky. Um, computers are getting, um, 
you know, we're, we're able to squeeze more data within that RAM. But uh, in, in terms of comfort level, the moment that you're spanning more than what's reasonably available, both for storing your data and for processing your data in terms of memory, I think Spark starts starts to make sense. So um, I, I would say like like a hundred gigabytes, maybe and above. Like it's something that's going to be. You can get a virtual machine that's going to do the same the same thing for you. But the more that you're going to push, it, it starts making sense using Spark. Um, and, and I also find you know there, there's a second component which I think is important to not discount is PySpark in itself uses Python, but you know, you're as a data scientist, you might prefer Python. Um, your data engineer might prefer SQL. Um, you might have some ops people that are going to be Java or Scala. That whole ecosystem, the fact that people can talk with the same, kind of talk to the same library using their language of choice, um, also makes it very powerful when you're working in the real world. Um, it, it's uh, it's easier to transition. Um, it's easier to, the abstractions are the same. So to me, those two dimensions become kind of important. Uh, but in terms of sheer size, uh, usually what I'm going to do is, I'm, I'm uh, if I'm unable to open the data set on my local machine, to me, it's a good sign that it's better to use Spark. Even on a small cluster, usually my comfort level is better. Uh, if I might ask a question, so I'm less technical than, than Michael is actually. Mm -hmm. uh, when we're talking about uh, Spark, right? So as far as I know, it's something that's running on, on the cloud. Mm -hmm. uh, can I run it locally on my computer? That's... Oh, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so if you, um, like, if you distill it, like, before, before cloud became vastly popular, um, uh, you know, there were some Hadoop vendors, which are, you know, the data lake. Like, I know Cloudera uh, was a major player. You had Hortonworks. Um, and as a matter of fact, Databricks, uh, the company who sponsors the development of Spark and was founded by the creator of Spark, um, actually built a, a whole data ecosystem around, um, around Spark, which now is cloud native. Um, but I have it on my machine. And as a matter of fact, when I develop for my book, like I'm, I'm creating some code example, I keep it on my machine. Like I, I don't want to spend money to keep uh, a virtual machine on the cloud or a couple of virtual machine on the cloud um, just to be able to do some examples. Um, and it's quite easy to install on your computer. There's a couple of, uh, of tricks um, that I explain in my book and you can be up and running work locally and then when you're ready to scale then you just get your cloud um, with the number of machine that you want and just go all guns blazing i think it also makes sense to to maybe just quickly talk a bit more about the notion of the cloud or uh, the the concept of, of of how it is different from your machine because i think it's it sometimes people underestimate the fact that it is just a machine in the end yeah it's somebody else's machine and so essentially the main point of developing for the cloud is actually to just learn to standardize your code and to just kind of use standard components. And then the cloud actually allows you to save a lot of time and effort on deploying your, your work. One of the things that's quite interesting, like, and, and I, I think it's a big argument to, to learn Spark, is that 
Spark is standard across all major cloud providers. So, you know, there are managed Spark instances. Um, so you don't have to worry about configuring your environment. You select the number of machines that you want, how much memory do they have, and then you can get started. They're going to take care of networking. They're going to take care of storage. They're going to take care of all of those little details that you would do if you were to, let's say, configure Spark on your own cluster, which I've done. I actually tried to, like, bought some small Intel nooks a couple of years ago and tried to install Spark on my own. Um, I don't do that anymore. I just default to cloud. Yes, that sounds really like a, like a labor of love, um, as opposed <laughs> to uh, um, running a productive environment uh, with the modern tools that you could have nowadays, right? So for me, it's also been a, a big kind of change in mindset when I kind of started to work with the cloud a bit more and kind of try to understand what the advantages mm -hmm. are. Um, but uh, I think one more thing that's also important to keep in mind is always use cases, right? So, um, for example, you have this Spark cluster that's now processing data. Um, what would be specific use cases and how you would process the data and get it from A to B? Um, well, so Spark, I would say the, the, a lot of the bread and butter of Spark is really like data transformation. So if... Um, if you're, let's say your source of truth, you know, the data that you're having access to is quite large. Um, what's really cool about Spark is that it plays quite well with the standard. Um, I'm going to use Python as an example, um, but this is also applicable to like Sparkler with, with R. Um, uh, you, you're able to, one of the use cases that we see the most is people start with Spark. You know, they, they take, The, the data source, let's say, from their data lake or their enterprise data warehouse or their SQL database, uh, they're going to process it to be able to get it manageable because, let's say, you start with, you know, let's say, a terabyte of data. You're not going to do your analysis on this. You're going to look into summarizing it, um, taking a couple of dimensions that are going to be useful. And then the moment that the data makes sense to be able to get into a single node, um, um, let's say you're, you're having you know, a couple hundred thousands of records, which is totally manageable by a single machine, you can convert your, your PySpark data structure into something that's going to be Python native or even Pandas, um, and then continue doing your analysis um, the same way that you, you've always been doing, um, which makes it, um, you know, it's, it's not necessarily like Spark is not really like playing against those players. It's, it's really hand in hand. And I see it kind of as a way to scale what you have. Uh, but it doesn't mean that what you've learned before or, you know, your, your statistical um, libraries, whether it is stats model or scikit-learn, um, they're, they're going down to the drain. Like you're still able to, to use them. Spark has some pretty nifty feature about, um, you know, parallelizing some of those workflow, which can be pretty fun. Um, but Like I would say this is probably the best way to start with Spark is, you know, you use it when you have a lot of data and the moment that it's, it fits your, your, um, your use case. And potentially to me, the best example is charting. There's no point into having charts that are going to be distributed. The data needs to be on a single node to generate the image. So there's like, there's really um, kind of a good blueprint on, um, when you are distributed and when you are single node and you can play between 
both of them in a way that's almost seamless. Can can I ask here a question? So um, I am aware of Spark for quite a while, but I also mm -hmm. know that a lot of people are saying that the downside of it is the, how expensive it is actually to run Aquarium. Mm -hmm. That many times it's not really efficient in the way that it's processing data, and this is why it's costing you quite a lot of money. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. What is your opinion about it, or what do you think about where it's standing today comparing to, let's say, mm -hmm. five years ago? Was it improved or not? Oh, oh, oh! This is this is really a, an, an excellent question. So, if you look five years ago, Spark um, had a single abstraction. So, you know, the the way that Spark was working five years ago is they uh, think of it as like a distributed collection. So PySpark was uh, slower because it wasn't optimized. You had a lot. Spark is a Scala application. So up until I would say three, three years ago, uh, you had conversion between, you know, let's say Scala and Python that would happen at runtime, which made it very, very slow um, by, by today's standards. Um, with Spark uh, 2.0, what happened is Spark created a new uh, data structure called the data frame, which is really similar to a pandas data frame, which is like rows and columns, um, a little bit more powerful than the, the basic pandas data frame. Um, and then they bridged the gap between the main standard implementation, which was Scala, and the, uh, the secondary implementation, Java. Python, R. I've heard that Microsoft is working on the .NET implementation, but it's not something I'm I'm extremely familiar, and and that created a lot of um, a lot of momentum, you know, for because the data structure, the, the data frame was a lot more familiar with data scientists, was a lot more familiar with data engineer, um, and then again with Spark 3.0, which was released, um, uh, I think last year. Um, there was some a big focus on Python, on interoperability, sorry, making Pandas and Spark work very seamlessly um, in a way that uh, leveraged the best of both worlds. And so there's a lot of work that happened into the performance. The second part to me is um, one of the, one of the, one of my pet peeves when I'm teaching Spark, and one of the reasons why I wrote the book is you have to think differently the way when you're programming in Spark. The, the data model is quite simple, but you cannot reflect, you cannot think about your, your data set as being something that's always available. Um, and, and one of the best examples is Spark will actually not store intermediate data because if you get to think of it, if you're working with terabytes of data, every single time you would do a transformation, it would generate terabytes of data all the time. Spark is actually more intelligent than this to be able to optimize the memory, which gives the impression that it's slow because it's repeating the, in, the operation again and again. So knowing and, and doing a little bit of planning ahead when you're working with large data set, it's going to pay dividends. But a lot of people are jumping in and they're saying, well, it's just like Pandas, but like distributed. And, and they forget that, you know, actually working with um, larger data set comes with its own set of problems that you have to address. So, so I think that those two dimension kind of gave Spark a, a bad reputation um, for, for quite some time. Uh, but the speed of innovation that happened and, and you know, 
people getting more aware of the complication of doing distributed data processing, um, I think are giving kind of a, a renaissance of Spark. You know, since Spark 3.0, I'm seeing a lot of people having momentum, my book sales upped. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm quite excited about what they've done and I'm quite excited about what's coming as well. I think there are also sometimes like uh, unfair comparisons being made because um, essentially the upside of Spark is that it scales. So if you would just do a toy example with like mm -hmm. a small data frame of like 100,000 rows, um, it probably would look faster to do processing on it on Pandas. Oh, yeah. Um, and at the same time, you would for a test purpose probably not run like a 100 gigabyte uh, data set. Um, on the other hand, of course, you have the side of, of uh, SQL and SQL processing larger uh, amounts of data sets, but they are also fairly standardized and they are also already usually running on a cluster and then something that's optimized and set up. So um, I think it's important to keep in mind what the proper comparisons are for Spark performance. Yeah. For you're totally right for small data frames and and you know a lot of the toy examples that we're doing and i mean i'm doing this in my book as well like i i can't realistically take a data set that's going to be terabytes of data and say well this is what you're going to learn with because it's going to take some time because you know a larger data set is going to necessarily take more time um so we're doing example with small data set. And then when you're comparing Spark on a small data set versus Pandas, well, Spark is actually doing a lot of optimization that takes a few seconds um, in order to be able to send a job. So I really believe that, you know, at the scale where Spark start to make sense is the scale where a solution like Pandas would be inappropriate because it, it would choke. And it's nothing against Pandas. Um, it's really that, you know, Pandas is using the memory that's available on a single node. It's not distributed. So there is a cap on what's being processed. Um, and, uh, and and then this is where Spark starts to make sense. But you're, you're kind of in a chicken and egg problem where, you know, when you're learning, you want to do something on a smaller data frame because you want to explore what's going to happen and look at the underpinnings. And a lot of people are disappointed because it, it seems slow. Um, but you know, as as uh, when you start having like let's say five six machine with a hundred gigs of RAM each, and you're splitting a data frame that's a couple of terabytes, then it starts making sense because you wouldn't be able to do this on a single machine. So your your comparison is what's possible versus what's impossible, rather than what's fast versus what's slow. I think those are two very interesting distinctions to draw. One that is about uh, what is possible and what is not possible. Um, so one thing, for example, is like whenever someone tells me like, oh, why can't you do your analysis in Excel? Uh, and then I would just kind of reply, well, at a million rows, the, the, it, it just stops opening files, right? So this is kind of uh, an impossible task to do. There's other reasons why I would use Python to process my data, but I think that's a good argument to make in a lot of cases. Um, if we go back to the question of what is slow and what is fast, uh, another thing I think that's very important is to kind of know a little bit more about the, the background, the technical background of the tools you're using. So um, I have to look at a lot of code from like more junior analysts uh, and data scientists. And then they, for example, would do things like um, 
taking data out of a pandas data frame, running a Python loop over it, putting it back into a data frame and all these back and forth things where if you understand a little bit more about the C bindings behind the scenes that are kind of making pandas as fast as it is, um, that this is just kind of a, a situation where sometimes you quadruple your memory needs just by being um, not very good at, at handling your tool, right? So um, I think there's the other component is also that we should keep in mind um, that in some cases you have uh, uh, an, an illusion of simplicity that causes issues. And that's something that I think for Spark is not as true as it is for Python and Pandas. Yeah, it, it's people, you know, as, as data scientists, data analysts, statistician, uh, we, we often tend to forget uh, how much engineering is happening behind the scene for, for data processing. If you look, at Pandas, uh, as an example, the amount of optimization and the amount of work that went into creating a library is absolutely staggering. Um, they, Python is not a remarkably fast language in itself, but the fact that it's been optimized down to C for certain loops. And, and, and you know, this is also the thing, like Spark recently, in order to communicate faster with Pandas, when you're doing distributed Pandas using Spark as an orchestrator kind of kind of sort. Um, they're using Arrow as a serialization format. Um, Arrow is a marvel of engineering. Like, you know, the speed up that you're able to see and the fact that they talk seamlessly is, is nothing short of amazing. So people have a tendency to take them for granted, assume that everything is going to run fast. And then the moment that you jump off of the ecosystem, as you were saying, doing a for loop or um, doing something that's not vectorized, then the performance tanks. And it's it's not surprising because you're, you're going down to a language that is not optimized for, for what you're trying to do. And it doesn't mean that it's wrong. I mean, I'm a big fan of like, you know, make it work, make sure that you understand your code and then look at improving the performance. And this is how I approach most of my, my PySpark development. But um, it's uh, the, the reality is that in order to have, powerful abstraction, there's always going to be a little bit of leakage. And, and this is what I'm trying to address, um, you know, in a book form, rather than having a couple of blog posts that are going to say, well, Spark is the best thing since sliced bread, and you can do whatever you want, which is not true. It's a fantastic tool, but it has its purpose. And it's important to understand where it fits and how to make it fit. We've talked a lot about how uh, Spark is constantly evolving. And um how kind of things change with the time. So the thing that kind of uh, I, I had to think about was what was your rationale for actually writing a book on the topic, specifically for the format of a book? Um, for me personally, uh, books are like a, a part of my life that's, that's still kind of uh, very important. But I also do realize that this is not the norm and not the thing that it used to be maybe some time ago. Um, I think my first experience with programming uh, actually came from a book that I uh, got from the library just because there was no uh, internet connection and the kinds of resources weren't really available. At the same time, I understand that a lot of programmers nowadays mostly kind of live on Stack Overflow. So um, yeah, what was your rationale for actually going with the with an actual book on the topic? Well, I mean, I decided to write a book because this is the way I learned. Um, I mean, I uh, um, so I'm, I'm publishing with Manning which uh, Manning is the publishing house that taught me how to code. 
um, I, I got their Python book and then I explored many programming language because I was fascinated about how you can express ideas into code. Um, so to me, um, this is the way that I, um, I learn best. Um, also working directly with, um, with a publisher, um, there is a much, um, a much better focus on the quality of content. One of the things that I've learned is uh, when you're writing to teach something, your language is going to be a lot different than when you're writing, let's say, to showcase that you know something. Um, so it, it was a huge learning experience, uh, finding the right material, the right way to teach something, use repetition, find good code uh, that's going to support what you're doing, drawing the figures, um, all of that, I think, overall makes it a more compelling package. I still have plans to be able to do videos. I'm still doing Twitch live stream uh, where I, I live code in, in, uh, in, in PySpark. Uh, but using the book kind of a central framework really um, helps me clarify my thoughts. And also it's something that's going to last longer. It, y there's precaution that we're taking so that I'm teaching first principles um, that are not going to get stale. Um, so, so to me, this is really, it's something that's deeply personal. Um, I know that books are, you know, a lot of people are, are, are thinking that, you know, books are going away. Um, but I, I, like, I mean, I have a tablet, I consume eBooks. I'm not a big fan of paper books, but I would say I read pretty much one or two books per month. Um, so, so to me, it's it's the best way, and I I make the bet that there's actually a fringe of the population that thinks like me. Yes, I am certainly right there on that fringe with you, um, and I I still believe that um, some things can also be be modernized by just creating combinations. Right, I'm I'm a bit more into paper books maybe than you are, but the way I would usually use it is that I have the book on my lap, and then I may have my tablet or my phone. And then sometimes when there's some technical term I'm not quite sure of or something that I didn't think was explained in depth enough, I would then actually just kind of Google on the side and then just go back to the book with like some firmer grasp of, of, of the concept that I'm reading about. Um, and so I think there's there's definitely just kind of like a, an evolving situation where books can be helpful. Um, for me, the question is also... So now you've decided that you want to write a book. Um, what was your kind of recipe for making it entertaining and making it uh, pertinent to people in, in, in a way that only a book can? Um, so I, I, I mean, if I look back at my experience of learning Spark, I, I found that it was hard to find appropriate material that combined Spark, the engine, and Python, the language. So looking at this from a perspective, like I'm a Python developer. Um, I, I really find the language to be beautiful and the ecosystem to be really enjoyable. Um, but, but taking this as a Python first, PySpark second approach and putting myself in the shoe of somebody who comes from Pandas, comes from regular Python and wants to be able to scale, I didn't find any material that really did everything at once. Um, and then... I also wanted to have something that would be entertaining um, and and not heavy and academic. Uh, so bundling multiple use cases and and giving people the opportunity to experiment, um, and and then 
hoping that this would uh, help a lot of people to bridge the gap and and people who believe that yeah you know spark is a little bit uh, hard to understand and i don't really get it um it was it, it was kind of the reflection that i had uh, w- when i made the proposal to um to write the book so we arriving to the end of the interview and before you go I have a very, very uh, interesting question for you. So I'm not a technical guy. I don't know how to develop anything. Uh, how can I actually start tomorrow uh, using mm-hmm. Spark and start using Python actually in, in a combination? What skills um, well, I mean, I the first thing is I, I, uh, I believe, you know, getting a good appreciation for Python, the language, so understanding, you know, the basic control flow. It doesn't spark one of the things that I like the most about Spark is uh, if you look at a well-structured Spark program, it reads quite a lot like English. Spark borrowed the vocabulary for data manipulation uh, from SQL. Um, so, you know, you have select, you have where, and, and the way it's mm-hmm. structured, it really, like some of the time I almost look at my my code block, and I'm like, by selecting that data frame, selecting those three columns, creating a new one, filtering to remove all the records that don't contain any value, and I'm writing this back to a data lake. And and you look at this, and it's very logical. So I I think, you know, the moment that you're able to understand the basic syntax of, of Python, because it, it is still a Python library. There's no way to go around this. Um, I think Spark is very accessible. And, and you're going to find that there's a lot less magic in terms of syntax. It requires more typing than Pandas, but I find it to be more regular and self-explanatory um, compared to Pandas that has a little bit of uh, gotchas. I know the pains of, of Pandas, and I know how tough it was actually to learn it and, and get a grip on it. I'm still having a hard time with like indexes and sometimes I get confused and um, it, it's uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, I find that I need to Google more stuff when I'm working with pandas than PySpark. Um, also I'm a lot more familiar with PySpark, so that might be an unfair comparison, but still like with a sample size of one. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, I think, I think for the next uh, episode, we should bring somebody with a Panda experience and do head-to-head, see who wins. <laughs> <laughs> I must say, I'm, I'm struggling to imagine what that kind of person would look like. Like, I spend a lot of time of my day with Pandas, but I wouldn't sit here saying like, oh, I love dealing with multi-indexes. I love uh, having to guess the data type of my columns, columns in a data frame at any given point in time. Um, I love not knowing if I'm dealing with a deep copy, a shallow copy, or a reference. Um, no, I wouldn't sit here and just kind of say, like, oh, this is my favorite way of working. I think the answer is both. I mean, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's really, like, I mean, to me, it's, it's not an either or. And, and, I mean, one of the best proof is, um, it, let's say you have a cluster and you want to be able to run multiple Pandas models. Spark's going to give you the option to... Uh, parallelize your your pandas code across multiple nodes in a way that's going to be like it takes literally like just a decorator on top of your method and then just like an apply in pandas as as a method name and 
And there's many things. In the past, it was kind of cumbersome. And I know there's third-party libraries that have been invented, but it's just so seamless now. So it's really not a competition of like, is it Pandas or is it PySpark? To me, it's just, yes, give me. I really think the, the the key word for this all is, is convergence in the end, right? Like the idea of saying, um, I have my Python binding for Spark code now. Um, I have a way to write SQL-like uh, code for my data processing without actually running uh, a SQL database um, or reusing some vocabulary from one concept or one paradigm to the other. Um, and then having Python as some kind of... Uh, kind of a global language that's sitting in the middle and it's just kind of binding out to all these other approaches. I think this this is really kind of um, the thing that, that makes this time so interesting, that you wouldn't have to hyper-specialize in one area, but now you're actually able to kind of bring in a lot of understanding, a lot of context that you've learned in other places. Um, someone who spent half of his career writing SQL as a data engineer could nowadays also just kind of branch out to Airflow, write a lot of Python and just kind of look at situations a bit differently. And then one day would use PySpark to actually just kind of also branch out towards Spark. I mean, I mean, you know, SQL is coming back with a vengeance. Like, you know, you're able to, uh, um, you know, now people are, are rediscovering the vocabulary of SQL. PySpark has like native bindings where you can blend SQL and Python together, which makes it super cool. The first programming language that I've learned is, is SQL. I mean, I, I've started with this when I was working with databases. So it, it's uh, like, I'm happy to see kind of, you know, um, everything kind of what's old is new again, SQL's cool again. And uh, um, I'm, I'm quite excited to see, you know, where, uh, where the future is going to lead us. But, but I really, really think that Spark got a lot of ideas right. Um, and, and they're, their way of approaching data is very compatible with the way I think. So I'm, I'm trying to share the good news and, and get more people to be excited about it and break some misconception um, that, that could arise. That's cool. So as we're closing the show, would you like to share with us why do you like data and what drives you actually, or what drove you actually to start uh, exploring this field? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, I, my major um, is in applied math, and I work in actuarial science for many years, um, which is basically my job was to build models for life expectancy, uh, retirement, uh, you know, drug claims. Um, and, and one of the things that I found is there's so much opportunities with data. There's so many ways to approach this in a very... Uh, interesting thing. Um, and I've always been very passionate about computers and how they work. Um, so to me, it was kind of a, just combining what I do for a living with what I love. So now I wake up every day and there's like fascinating data problem. Um, and you get to do crazy stuff. Like, I mean, during my pastime, I, I build some models that do like pretty much nothing. Um, and, and I'm enjoying the process just because it, it trains your brain into thinking differently and it gives you a new insight on, on what's happening. Um, one of the recent things that I've been doing is uh, I've been downloading all of my transaction, you know, from my banking statement and credit card statement, and then trying to build a model of when I'm going to go bankrupt 
Um, <laughs> I might have to do some change. Uh, but, but you know, this is the thing. Like you can do stuff that is really silly. And, and once you remove yourself from the, the process and you're just enjoying the process of doing data discovery, and um, it, I just think this is where the fun starts. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Oh, we lost Michael. So <laughs> if, if I may ask then one more question, uh, mm -hmm. which will come at the end of the show. What was your biggest failure, actually, when you started to explore the world of PySpark? What was the most frustrating moment that you had? Oh, my God. Um, so my first interaction with PySpark was on my previous employer. Um, and they had uh, an internal data lake. And Spark was working on it. And it was so annoying at the time. It was, I would say, like, it was kind of the dark age when, you know, Spark 1.6, 2.0, 2.1 was, like, kind of, like, meshing with uh, together. And combining Python 2 versus Python 3. And then the different version of Java. And a different version of libraries that were not all compatible with one another. And a version of Spark that didn't talk the same API. And trying to navigate this was absolutely maddening. I remember like screaming on the phone <laughs> to my DevOps people. And I was like, can you get it right? I want this with that version of Python, with those version of libraries. And they're like, yeah, no, not possible. I was almost about like to take a plane, go to our headquarters, which is, which was in the United <laughs> States at the time, and just go like and smack them a little bit and say like just make it happen. Um, and then it, it gave me another appreciation for like cloud services. Um, I'm uh, I, I'm mostly familiar because of the client that I've been working on with Google Dataproc, um, which always been very principled about the version that they're using. Databricks doing the same thing with their Databricks runtime. And and I would say, like, if you if your use case doesn't warrant getting fancy, use something that's been battle tested because you're in the business of deriving insight. You're not in the business of, like, resolving for versions of libraries and trying to make everything work. Uh, you know, this is a value prop of the cloud. Uh, if you're using it um, and i mean like even at home usually what i'm going to do is i'm going to go on the databricks website look at one of the runtime copy paste their list of libraries and just install it on my computer so i don't have to worry about it because i know that it should work uh and and uh i i love coding like you know managing op stuff nah there's other people that <laughs> like this i'm leaving that to them I like the sentence of uh, my DevOps team makes me appreciate the cloud because it can essentially mean two things, right? One is um, they are just kind of explaining to me how the cloud works or two, um, I'm happy that the cloud is going to replace most of them. <laughs> um, well, we're, we're, I mean, we're an engineering consultancy. Like I have a plenty of coworkers that are very fascinated about ops and you know, we have a data engineering team. We're talking about what's cool to be able to do with Spark and we have some healthy debates about like, um, you know, w what is the best approach to do things. Um, so I have some coworkers that are fascinated about ops and I'm like, that is wonderful. I'm going to give you all my ops stuff. You take care of it. I'll do the shiny stuff. 
I think there's also this unique advantage uh, for a consultancy that, that you get to make these mistakes. Um, and when you find proper solutions that have the right amount of DevOps, of standardization, of open source software, um, then you get to roll it out to a number of clients, right? So um, I think be being battle tested is, is a notion that is not obvious to everyone who's just kind oh, of yeah. setting out to build their own BI yeah. or yeah, data yeah, infrastructure yeah. from scratch for their own company. Um, and then very soon, I think people will start to realize that, um, yeah, this is a job that someone who's done this a couple of times could do this in two months for me. Yeah, people like to build stuff. Like, I mean, this is this is the thing. But, you know, don't believe the hype. Like most of the time, it is more complicated than it is, than it looks, sorry. And, and you need to, uh, um, you know, if you don't want to repeat the same mistakes that some people have done, like, there's there's a really method to the madness and and as open source you know open source is eating the world but we always have to remember that uh, open source software is is done with uh you know you're you're making the bet that you're going to be able to support it on your own or you purchase other other support models so you always have to um to uh to be mindful and it's not even careful i think open source is fantastic but you have to be mindful that you know you're you're going you're, you're participating into the ecosystem um so i think it's important to think about contributing uh, i think it's important to think about you know there's going to be bugs along the way and you need to be able to fix them um and, and and you know any company that believes that you know it's out of their realm um well every like if your company has 90% of their people in front of a computer, like you're much closer to an IT company than you think. So I think it's really important to remember that. Like one of my favorite joke is, uh, you know, if, if you're bad at computers and you work at it full time in front of a computer, like I, I don't want to go to dinner at your place because you must suck at cooking. <laughs> uh, so, so it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's always something to remember. Like, you know, as much as I love uh, Spark, Pandas, and, you know, the the whole data science ecosystem, we, we always have to be mindful that people who are working on this are mostly volunteers. And it's really humbling to see, like, all of the good work that needs to happen, but you need to calibrate your expectation. Like, they're not going to fix everything. Um, and, and sometimes you need to be able to go down. Like, I've, I've patched, you know, some of PySpark's code because something wasn't working the way that I wanted. And and I think it's a very fun experience. You get to really understand your tools. They're super interesting. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed this conversation. It's I think there is a lot of good stuff inside it. So anybody want to listen? Thanks, Michael, for joining. Always a pleasure. Any last word, Jonathan, where people can find you, how they can reach out, um, sure. I mean, my, uh, my, my GitHub handle is, is, uh, Johnsburg. I'm mostly on LinkedIn. I don't do Twitter very well. Um, um, and also, you know, my book is named data analysis with Python and PySpark. It's available on, uh, manning.com. Um, I encourage you, you know, this is an interactive process Buy the book, look online. If you see some comments, um, and anything that you would uh, you think I've overlooked or any mistakes that I might have made, um, it's it's very fun to be able to interact with readers and 
understand exactly what problems they're facing. Um, and uh, in April, if you subscribe to Manning's newsletter, um, I'm going to do live coding of a data science pipeline. Um, uh, oh, yeah, by the time the interview is going to be published, April might be gone. So, uh, But, you know, it's still going to be on Twitch. Um, it, it's quite enjoyable. And, and I think it's going to showcase really the power that you can have in a few lines of code. Cool. We will make sure to add all this to the comments on this episode so people can subscribe to it. And thank you very much for your time. And we're going to see you around soon. Thank you for listening to the What the Data podcast with your hosts, Mitch and Leo. Leo.